Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. So uh, today in our story series, Jesus tells us a parable that is in the middle again of a series of interactions. He often tells us stories out of an interaction with people, and it addresses, I think, two questions that we are constantly asking ourselves. Uh, Will I have a good life, and what do I need to have a good life? I don't don't think it matters how old or young you are. I think we're always asking and answering those two questions. As as kids, we're answering that question, asking it and answering it by saying, well, maybe, maybe I need to be the captain of the team. Or as a teen, we might be answering it by saying, I need to be part of this social group. As, as a college student, we might be answering that question, what do I need to have a good life by our grades and the internships we get. And when we're, uh, when we're adults and uh, we, we might answer it in many different ways. Maybe it's the house you live in or the vacations you get to take or a host of other ways we answer that. But I think all of us are constantly, even when we're not conscious of it, asking and answering those two questions. Will I have a good life and what will it take for me to have a good life? So we're going to spend our time today in Luke 12 and let's set the stage for Jesus' story. Back in chapter 11, the interaction starts and you see the Pharisees manipulatively trying to plot and explicitly trying to trap Jesus in his words, to condemn him. Everybody sees what's happening. Everybody recognizes these are dangerous political games being played. And then in chapter 12, Jesus says to his disciples and the crowds, hey, those powerful people uh, who are not always in, uh, honest, uh, political leaders, and that you think that you are, are, they're beyond your control to ever get what you want from them, don't worry. He says, God is more powerful. What happens in secret, uh, all that conniving that happens, it's going to be relieved, uh, revealed, so trust God. And then he goes on to say, so therefore, don't live in fear. Don't fear those who can unjustly use their power against you. God cares, he says, for the sparrows, so how much more will he care for you? So when you are, then he goes on and and even further, he says, so when you are called before these authorities who intimidate you, get into these intimidating situations in life where you don't feel like you have the voice or the power, God is going to give you the power to know what to say and to know what to do in those difficult circumstances. So what we see Jesus doing in relation to these explicit political games, dangerous political games, is he's, he's giving the people hope. He's giving them a sense of empowerment and courage as listeners to face these things. So then out of the blue, this guy interrupts him while he's saying that. And he says to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He's basically saying, Jesus, be Judge Judy. Tell my brother to give me my money and the property I deserve, right? So think about this. The guy has one shot to talk to Jesus, this great man who the crowds are trying to see, who everybody's admiring. And what does he pick? He ta- picks the topic of money. So Jesus decides to go down this rabbit trail with this guy because all of us, I think, have to grapple with this idea. Of what does the good life look like, especially in relation to our money and our things? 
So this guy is thinking, man, if I just get this money, if I, if I just get this land, if I just get this plow that my dad had, this hutch, this china, then I feel, I'm going to feel good about life and I can do the things I want to do, the things that I need to do in order to have a good life. I can start a business. I can be better off socially and relationally, be more acceptable, and I'll have a good life. But he's also thinking, if I don't get this, then I'll miss out on the good life. You see, he's already answered the question, what do I need for a good life? And his answer is, I need my inheritance. So what's your answer to that question in your life? What do you need for the good life? So before we uh, were even engaged, Wendy and I were sitting with her family one time talking about dreams in life. And her brother loves cars. So her, her brother asked the question, if you could have your, have your dream car, what would it be? And I, we were all six of us sitting around there. And I, I can't remember the specific answers, but they were saying things like, I want a Porsche 911. I want a top-of-the-line Mercedes convertible. And then it came to my turn, and my answer was, I want a stripped-down base model, five-speed manual transmission, Toyota Camry, and deep red. And they laughed at me just like you laughed at me right now. I mean, what is it with this? I just get laughed at with that answer all the time. No, my brother and thought, wow, I mean, what a low bar for a dream. I mean, that's, there's absolutely no cool factor in that. It's just functional. Now, I got my dream car a couple years later. 19 years after that, when we were moving to Ohio, I sold it, and I, and I, I kind of wish I would have repaired it and kept it and brought it with us. It was such a reliable car, easy driving, great. And yes, it was a very functional car, but it was just a car. It was just a car. What do I need? What do you need to have a good life? We all have different definitions. I was reading this last week, uh, an article about Katie, Kevin Durant, the, the great basketball player. And in it, the author wrote that Katie went from the Thunder to the Warriors thinking, if I just can go and I can just win an NBA championship, then I'll be satisfied with I've had a really good life, a really good run. And as you know, he went there. He won two NBA championships, two finals MVP tr- awards, and his name is in the record books as one of the best, greatest playoff scorers in the history of the NBA. And yet the author of the article noted after the first championship and MVP award, he actually went into this period where he was just really despondent. He was just kind of, is this all? I thought it would, I thought it'd feel different about life, about everything. It didn't fully answer the questions of will I have a good life and what do I need to have a good life for him? And then after the second championship, the author notes the questioning grew even more And that's the reason that resulted in a trade this year to the Nets. See, one of the most successful, wealthy people on the planet, and those questions about the good life are still frustratingly elusive. What will give me the good life? So the guy in the story says to Jesus, my brother gave me my inheritance, he'll give it to me. And Jesus answers him and says, man, who made me a judge? Do I look like Judy? arbitrator over you. And he said to them, take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he goes on to tell us the parable we're going to look at today. See, Jesus is saying, you and I, we have to be really careful not to define the answers to the questions. Will I have a good life? And what will give me a good life by the things we have? Otherwise, it will lead us down an empty path. So before we read this parable, let me just kind of preface it with two things. Isn't it true that you and I often equate 
the answers to will I have a good life and what will give me a good life with possessions, cars, houses, vacations, eating out at nice restaurants all too often. We equate the good life with the nice TV and sound system, with the tickets to all the events and the shows that we think would be fun to go to. As parents, we equate the answer of the good life for our kids with my kids will always have the best opportunities for everything they want in sports, music, extracurricular activities. They're going to have the best coaching, the best teachers, the best teams. They will never be out of fashion so that anybody will make fun of them. They will experience, pardon me, the travel I always wanted to experience as a child. See, even though intellectually we know better, we still way too often default to pursuing the good life is related to things that only money can buy. The second thing we read in this story that I want to talk about before we get into it is, is Jesus is not saying riches are bad in this story. Riches are not bad. In fact, all throughout the scripture, God talks about how he loves to bless his followers. So with that in mind, let's jump into this story and then we're going to examine the lessons. So it says, and Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I, I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be now? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Wow. That's pretty tough, isn't it? The big idea Jesus is getting at is simply this. What it means, he wants to get at what it means to be good at being rich, wisely rich, truly Rich, And I think in this story we see two things that we tend to forget. And these things, when we forget them, they will prevent us from actually being good at being rich. And the first one is simply this. We forget that we are rich. The story of Jesus leads off with the land of a rich man. This man was already rich before his crops produced plentifully. And isn't this especially true for us in America? We are rich. Now, I'm, I'm going to show a video clip here in just a second. Let me, let me just preface it with this statement. I am not making a political statement in this. In fact, any of the, any of the political implications in there, I just want you for now to just ignore those, and I want you to pay attention to the facts that they're wrestling with in this clip. The rich get richer, and the poor get poorer. The rich getting richer, and the poor getting poorer. The poor get poorer? People keep talking about the evil of income inequality. This is the living room in a $16 million penthouse apartment. It's true that some rich people have gotten absurdly rich. But the other claim that they got rich while the poor people got poorer is just a myth. As we've increased the number of billionaires around the world, extreme poverty has actually shrunk down. Former investment banker Carol Roth points out that Anyone who pays attention knows that as the rich got richer, most poor people got richer too. Worldwide, more than a billion people rose out of poverty. Yes, the rich got even richer, but why is that a problem? Consider poor me and rich me. Over the past 40 years, we rich Americans got 200% richer. Lucky me. 
I got just 32% richer. I didn't gain as much as he did. But I don't see how I'm hurt. I'm 32% richer. And yes, that's adjusting for inflation. And it doesn't even count all the cool new stuff innovation gave me. And here's, here's another, another misleading, misleading claim. claim. A lack of economic mobility. The lack of economic mobility. Watching the news, you'd think people born poor in America have little chance to become rich. A striking lack of economic mobility in America. It's true that people with rich parents have a big advantage. But it's not like Americans are locked in. Economists at Harvard and Berkeley crunched the numbers and found most people born to the richest fifth of Americans fell out of that bracket within 20 years. Likewise, most born to the poorest fifth climbed to a higher quintile. Some make it all the way to the top. Isn't that amazing? Think about it. Most Americans are 32% richer. I don't know about you, but when I heard that, I, I kind of went, uh, really? You know, that's a big number even, even just the 32%. So over the course of the last couple of weeks since I, since I saw this clip, I've just been thinking about it and occasionally doing a little research on it. And here's just a bit of what I found. In 1940, 43.8% of Americans were in homes they owned or were in the process of owning. Today, it's 64.2% of Americans. 47% more people are on the path to owning homes today than they were a few years ago. In 1950, the average home being built was 983 square feet. Today, it's 2,600 square feet. That's 265% larger today than then, and the average size household has actually shrunk, so that means more space for fewer people. And that doesn't even address the increased expectations of the average finishes or furnishings of a home. The average household actually owns twice as many vehicles today as it did 30 years ago. Just 30 years ago. According to a Forbes article, the average U.S. welfare payments mean that people on welfare in the U.S. are in the top 20% of income earners in the world. Now, please understand... That doesn't always reflect the whole equation. I understand that. I'm not naive to that. There are, is still a lot of need around us, a lot of poverty. There is even extreme poverty around us that I'm fully aware of. I've actually personally seen it. I've been in homes where if you went in the home, you would practically want to fall to the ground weeping at the living conditions that the people were in. I, I know we have a lot to do yet in poverty, even in America. And even beyond that, the fact of the matter is when no matter what stratosphere of the income we are in, when we are having difficulty paying bills at times, it does not feel like we are rich. I, I get that. But on the whole, even, though most, even most Americans who are poor are much richer than they were just a couple generations ago. Better health care, better income, better living conditions, better security and food security, better amenities in life. We forget we are rich. Why? Simply because of this. Because enough is never enough. See, this is actually the central theme in Jesus' story. The rich man was already rich, and then he gets more and more and more, and it's never enough. And so Jesus, in a sense, is almost posing a question to us out of this. Are we coveting more and more all the time, or are we living life content, 
See, the guy who asks about his inheritance is consumed with coveting. Perhaps the father died, now they're splitting up the estate and the inheritance, and he's worried that his brother's going to get more and be unfair to him, and he wants his fair due. And how many of you have ever seen coveting erupt and destroy a family when someone else dies? All of a sudden, this functional, loving family turns into jockeying and arguing, bickering and seeking what is mine and what I want. And, and this is where our heart gets exposed all too often. Instead of grieving together, we become contentious with one another. See, coveting is not about having possessions. Coveting is about our attitude, our heart attitude towards possessions, of loving possessions. Loving in a way that means we can't stop thinking about it. We can't live without it. We absolutely have to have it. And even if you don't have the money, you're still going to go out and get it, and we call that debt today. The average American credit card debt is over $8,400. That's 18% higher than it was five years ago. The most likely person to be in credit card debt is a young single woman. And, you know, you, you just look at that and you just, you just get sad with it, Right? When you covet something, you put your hands through these shackles and these, and these handcuffs and you become a slave to the lender. See, that's the trick of coveting. Coveting ends in slavery. Someone owns your dollars before you've ever earned them. Someone owns your days and your time to earn those dollars because you worship someone or something other than God. As Americans, we tend to kind of minimize this coveting sin, especially we don't think it is a big dangerous sin. Instead, the coveting in our culture oftentimes comes out in, in the predominant healthy, unadvertising, unhealthy advertising and marketing in our culture. You see, the whole point of most advertising and marketing is to make you discontent so that you covet, covet things because if you're content, you're glad with what you have, you're glad with what others have, but you don't need to have what they have. You're not driven to get it in order to feel good or, or go into debt to get it. But if you're coveting, everything changes. See, advertising creates this sense of discontentedness to want things we didn't even know we need. In fact, we probably don't even need them. I mean, have you watched a car commercial lately? Oh, it's a new car. I have an old car. Oh, they, the new car has all these speakers. That's amazing. And man, the new car has heat, heated seats. My bum is cold in the winter. I don't have heated seats. I needed heated seats. In fact, I needed, I needed it to heat my bum, but I needed to heat a muffin on my way to work. That's how bad I need this car. And all of a sudden, you start coveting things that you didn't even know existed, that you didn't know you needed, and so you go get it. So do you feel good? And then 6 to 12 months later, a new model comes out, an improved model comes out, and you need, you need that. You have to have that new watch. Now, no matter how much we minimize it, do not covet is number 10 on the Ten Commandments. God says, you shall not covet your neighbor's houses. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife you, or make his male servant or, or, his, or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And the donkey includes those the cars, guys. It includes that SUV, that motorcycle, that truck. That's the donkey. I think it's interesting that God starts that list with our neighbor's house. How many of us tend to covet our neighbor's houses? There's this larger they have a nicer theater room. They have a QLED UHD 12-foot screen and my mirror 1080p high-definition 6-foot screen. It's like slumming, like third-world slum. And we watch the home TV shows and we start coveting. Like, they have a basketball court in their bathroom. I need a basketball court in my bathroom. I used to be happy with my bathroom, but now it's too small. 
and we just start coveting. Oh, their kitchen is so nice. They have granite countertops. We don't have granite countertops. I'm sure Jesus rose from the dead. And when he did it, he didn't mean for us to have non-granite countertops. It's an American way. We forget we are rich, which leads to the second point. We become like the rich man in this parable who we forget God. See, this is a really, really fascinating parable. It's actually the only parable Jesus tells where God, the G-O-D, the word spelled out, is explicitly identified in the parable. In all the other parables, we see God as a character, as a, as a father, as a master, as a king, as a ruler, but you don't hear God as an explicit character speaking in the story. See, this rich man in the story of this parable, he's talking all the time. He's talking to himself all the time, talking about his wealth, talking about what he should do, and all of a sudden, God interrupts and speaks. And it's like God is saying, hey, you've been talking, and I, God, have been listening all the time. You see, God is listening into our conversations and our thoughts, watching us all the time. That's kind of a weird thought, isn't it, right? I mean, you never have a thought, you never have a word that God does not hear. Whether you are dressed to the nine or in your ugliest, oldest pair of undies, God is watching you. That's weird, right? God is always there. But we go through life focusing on ourselves and our own accomplishments, our own abilities, our own leadership, our own wants, and we forget God is always there. And the truth is God wants, wants to be there with us. I ran across this profound quote. No no one knows the origin of it. It says, at its very root, pride is forgetting God. Pride thinks we are the ones with the power, the ones with the creativity, the ability to create, the ones with control. So we live as owners. We live as gods, not as stewards working on behalf of the king of the universe. So this rich man, he dreams up and achieves all these big, hairy, audacious goals, getting bigger and bigger and richer and richer and richer. And God, who is listening in, who's relegated to a fly on the wall, who no one pays attention to, all of a sudden steps in after a really long time to the story. And he says, so you think you are so capable, you are so secure in your things. Tonight your soul is required of you. And this statement is, is, is much deeper and much wider reaching than just death. It is soul, your very identity, the things that you think supply you with a good life, all that that you've been pursuing, the things, it's just a mirage. It's all gone. See, when we, forget, when we covet, we forget God. Because the way you guard your heart against coveting is by worshiping God. Coveting is actually worship. It is a form of idol worship. An idol can be anything that you love too much or you love, or, or you love more than God. Coveting is idolatry. So the way we combat coveting is through worshiping. Tim Keller, I think, talks about this really in a really helpful way. He talks about we all have these surface idols and we all have these really deep idols. When it comes to the issues of money, the surface idol might be money and riches, but, but, but we need to look at the deeper idol that's actually driving that, something under it. So the surface idol may be riches, but the deeper idol for us is status. What kind of car I drive says a lot about me. Where I live and what kind of house I live in defines me. I'm defined by the brand name of my clothes, even the brand name of my underwear. 
They define my status. They give me access to certain social groups that put me in a certain social class. The idol of status can be so deep in us, and we forget God. We forget that our identity is actually rooted and established by a God who created us, who loves us and desires us and has a good plan for our lives. For others, the deep idol is not, uh, of, the, of the riches surface idol is security. Have you ever read a story of, of the miser who collected a massive fortune, but he only, never wore anything new. He always wore old clothes, patched clothes, drove a beater car, lived in a simple house, and never, ever spent anything. He was just the stingiest guy you've ever known. And then he dies, leaving behind this massive fortune. Now, maybe there's healthiness in that, but, but have you ever wondered what motivates people like that? Maybe there's also an idol. The surface idol might be wealth, but the deep idol is often security. They're not trusting God to take care of them. So they're thinking, I just need to have enough money, and I have to have more and more and more and more, and I have to build bigger barns to hold it all so that no matter what happens, what disaster ever happens, I will always have enough to cover that doctor bill, that, that surgery. I can cover every possible need, and I never have to worry. It's, it's security. So they don't spend money because of the idol of security. For some, when it comes to wealth, the deeper idol is comfort. Have you ever asked yourself, why do I buy that? Why, why do I go into debt? Why do I spend all this money? Why do I get all these toys? Why do I spend all this money on these hobbies and this entertainment stuff? It's comfort, right? It's ease. It's pleasure. We come home after a long day of, of work or a long week of work, and we say, I deserve this comfort. We can't afford it, but I deserve this comfort, right? That's the deep idol. I just want to be happy. I just want to have junk and I want to build bigger barns called storage facilities to hold my stuff. Do you realize there's five times as many storage facilities in the United States as Starbucks? And we think Starbucks is on every corner, right? Now the question is, are you content? If you're not content, you'll be coveting. And Jesus says, be on your guard against covetousness. Jesus says, the good life we are seeking does not consist in the abundance of possessions that we may or may not have. Jesus is trying to point us to what truly rich and a true wealthy life is. We only find the good life that is full of contentment and joy in relationship with God, living in God's ways. See, the questions we began with today, will I live a good life? What will give me the good life? They're fine questions, but, but Jesus is actually trying to take us to a question that I think is even better in this story. Jesus is inviting us to ask ourselves in this parable, what does God want me to do with the riches he has already given me? See, this question is powerful and it's healthy. Because in it, we already start from that basis of recognizing God has supplied for us in rich, abundant measure. And it flips the focus from us being driven with this pressure to find the good life to seeing the good life we already have right now. And therefore, we don't have to live with this stress, this drivenness over our future. We just live with the question today, what does God want me to do today with the riches he has already given me?
See, the guy in this parable, he obtained great wealth. His business flourished. It's not a sin for a business to flourish. You should actually do a good job in your work and make as much money as your work will allow you to make. The sin was not that he became wealthy. The sin was that he didn't worship God with the wealth that God blessed him with. He realized he had more grain, and in an agrarian society, what, what would you normally probably do with that? You'd probably trade it, right? You can't eat it all. You can't use it all. But we see that he doesn't have room enough in his barns now for all the riches he already has. It's overflowing, so he just continues to big more, big builder, bigger barns and more, and he has, he has way more than he needs. His bills are paid. His retirement account is stocked for him and a thousand other people already. He's doing fine. What does he decide to do? Build more barns, hold more grain, more riches. See, we would look at him today and we would say, he's rich. But God looks at him and says, he's a fool. He's working on a retirement plan that is way, way, way above and beyond anything he ever needs and holding it all for himself. Understand, this parable does not say that we shouldn't plan for retirement. In fact, we should. It's not a sin if you make enough money that someday you don't have to get up and go to work every day. But that doesn't mean your goal in life is just to eat and drink and play shuffleboard and wear flip-flops and live on a beach and sip drinks under an umbrella talking with people about their aches and pains and the latest surgery they had. That's not the goal of retirement in life. God says the American dream is foolish. See, the American dream of retirement is I paid my dues and now I get to just have fun. But the Christian dream of retirement is not retirement, but maybe refocusing our life. Now I get to do less of what I don't like to do and I get to do more of what I like to do for the mission of Jesus. I get to bless and care for my family more. I get to serve those in need even more. I get to serve in my church and bless the next generation even more because I am free to do that now. The American dream of retirement and life and wealth, Jesus says that's foolish. And it isn't foolishness because God is prudish or demanding, or not wanting you to ever enjoy any of your money. He wants you to enjoy some of the money he gives you in a wonderful way. On the contrary, it is foolish because it's foolish. It doesn't lead you to the good life our hearts desire. See, God isn't saying get rid of all your wealth and live like a pauper, at least not to all of us. He might ask some of us to do that for specific reasons, and he might even ask more of us to use the riches of our talent in a place that, to work in a place that doesn't get as rewarded financially as other jobs. But for every single one of us, Jesus is inviting us to ask the best question, not what gives me a good life, but what does God want me to do with the good riches He has given me right now. And Jesus unsettlingly says, the fool in this life is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I was so blessed and so convicted of what is right, best, and good recently. I had the privilege of sitting at Panera with a new friend named Jeff. He doesn't go to Quest. He lives in the Pickerington area. He uh, he's a part of a small, struggling church that sponsors Bryce Christian Academy. 
uh, has a large food pantry and feeding ministry as well. His life story is it's just this beautiful story of course correcting over the course of his life to, to be a heart who wants to be rich toward God. Uh, he was a highly successful marketing guy early in his life, working for a Fortune 500. They wanted him so bad, they let him work part-time and have summers off because he just they still wanted him. But he, he, instead of climbing the corporate ladder, he eventually just left that. He chose a, a simpler lifestyle so he could be a great dad and have time to invest in church and meeting needs of people around him. Now, God has certainly blessed him financially along the way, but now he spends most of his days teaching a couple classes at the academy and working with his church. And, but, but those are the facts of the situation. Let me, let me attempt to communicate the heart of the story. As I've gotten to know the ministry of Bryce Christian Academy, I've been overwhelmed with compassion. I, I, the vast majority of students come to that school from rough school districts of Columbus, rough neighborhoods of Columbus. They use their state vouchers to go to Bryce. In most situations, not because they're Christian, because they aren't Christian, but because they're just looking for an actual safe place with a better education. Most of the kids have minimal parental support because they're living in households that are facing the stress of struggling financially and personally with many things. This past year, I got to personally get involved with a class of first graders. I meet 16 kids who were all led to faith by their teacher, who is, by the way, part of Quest teaching there, and hear the stories of how these kids' lives are turned around. Just melts your heart. As I sat down with Jeff, uh, he was wanting to talk with me about his desire and, and just run by his ideas for how maybe this small church could, could reach these kids and these families and bring them to Christ and, and how this 30 pe- these 30 people have the opportunity to touch 1,500 kids, 1,500 people of, of, of all the families a week during the school year, most of whom are not followers of Jesus, most of whom have very high needs in their life. And he started telling me story after telling me. He told me a story of one child he taught a few years ago who every day still tries to come by his place at school just to get a hug because it's the only hug he gets that day. He talked about, as he talked about it, his tears were flowing and, and I was fighting back tears. A couple minutes later, he talked about another child who when at the end of the school came, uh, he had been teaching him that year, he came to him sad because he wasn't going to have him for a teacher next year again. And the, the kid just wanted to know, could he still come back and say hi? Because he needed to know Jeff cared for him and he wasn't just doing a job. And as he tells that, tears are coming from his eyes and I'm wiping the corners of mine. And he talked about specific kids in the school who get fed at school and they often go home on the weekend and don't get three meals a day, sometimes only one meal a day. And tears came from his eyes and I kept wiping mine more and more. And he talked about kids and their families coming into the church for food and how desperate some of the single moms were just trying to get by, just trying to provide. And the tears flowed from his eyes and I needed to blow my nose. I'm not a crier. But I just couldn't help experiencing the compassion oozing from him. And he talked over and over again about his dream that maybe all of these kids and their families could be reached to become followers of Jesus. And maybe from the, that hope and from the practical help that their church might possibly be able to give them, it might result in these kids who have little hope of a good life experiencing the good life. And I sat there blessed by the heart of a man who just wants his life to be about laying up riches with God. 
You know, sometimes even as a, even as a full-time pastor, it's your job, and it's just so easy at times to lose that level of depth of compassion that Jeff showed me that day. It's so easy for all of us in our pursuit of being a good dad, a good mom, a good person, a successful business person, an influential leader in our community. It's so easy to lose track of the priority of the king and his kingdom. And when we face life, it's so easy for us to take the burden on our own shoulders to just get it done in life, to build bigger barns, to set bigger goals, to constantly be working for more and more and more and more and the pressure of that. But God says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And the way that burden becomes light is to ask and answer, I think, the best question Jesus is giving us in this story today. What does God want me to do with the good riches he's already given me? To start by recognizing and and just being grateful for what God has already given us and to keep the ownership where it belongs. It's not on our shoulders, it's God. And when we remember that we're stewards of all that he gives us, we just live life differently. See, some of you have said, if God gives me a lot of money, then I'm going to be totally generous. But here's the truth. Enough is never enough. So if you aren't generous now, you won't be generous then. If you're not generous now, God will likely not bless you with the wealth to be generous. Or at the very least, if you accumulate wealth, how you handle it will lead to heartache and emptiness, a mirage of the good life that is not really there. Worship team, go ahead and come on up. See, after this parable, Jesus goes on to immediately reiterate reiterate these points we talked about with another discussion that many of you may be familiar with. He says, do not worry about what you'll eat, about what you wear. Don't worry about the things money can buy. God clothes the lilies of the field like he clothes Solomon in all his glory. He takes care of the birds of the air. How much more are you? Instead, live your life with a singular focus to seek first the kingdom of God, to seek to know the king, to be in relationship with the king, and to seek to live your life according to the king's kingdom ways. And the promise Jesus says out of that is, and all these other things, the things of this life, the food, the clothing, the money, it'll be given us. Because God, God is a generous God. And he loves being generous with us. And he loves us being generous. And he responds to that generosity in us with being more generous even with us. But we can't ignore the stark warning Jesus gives us in this. He says, foolish is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Or as Jesus reemphasizes a few later, a few verses later, the same thing after the seek first stuff, he says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See, money and the things it buys are most often the answers that we have to the questions of the good life. But Jesus wants us to ask a different question. And Jesus is asking us, Are you a fool laying up treasure for yourself, building bigger barns for yourself? Or are you living rich toward God? We can take steps to rich toward, be richer towards God even this week. And that can start by simply identifying those areas where we were tempted with coveting and simply ask God forgiveness and ask God to help us to learn to be richly content right now.
and that we can help ourselves connect to God and become even more content by practicing gratitude and generosity. Maybe, maybe that looks like you daily writing down in your journal or maybe over the dinner table sharing three things you are grateful for of how richly God has blessed you in life even that day. And then you can also start uh, practicing that by just increasing your generosity to God's work through his church and through you towards others. Would you stand with me as we pray? God, thank you for having Jesus tell this story and for making sure it gets captured for us. God, I got to confess, it's just, it's just so easy every single week. There are things I see that I go, oh, if I had that, I'd be just a little more happy. If I had that, it'd be fun. And there's so many things I covet. I think we all do, Lord. And yet you have blessed us so much. No matter where we fit on the American economic scale, God, every single one of us in this room is rich by world standards. So Lord, would you just come to us and help us rest in the joy of that, be content in that. God, would you help our lives have meaning and beauty beyond anything we can imagine by learning to be rich toward you. So Lord, even as we turn now and worship you with the words of this song, would you, would you receive this as worship from us? Would you in this worship come and settle our hearts from the things we covet and just give us peace from you? And Lord, would you show up this week and help us lay up riches today, tomorrow, and the next day for you. And know the joy of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you continue to worship? Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.